As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, now's the time with our best offer ever. Sign up today and you'll pay just £1 a month for the next six months, giving you unrivaled insight and analysis of everything Euro 2020 and taking you well into the new Premier League season two. The Athletic is the only place you can read pieces by award-winning writers like Michael Cox, Rafa Honigstein, Amy Lawrence and Daniel Taylor. And when you subscribe, you'll also get ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts from across its audio network. Head to theathletic.com slash totally and become a subscriber today for six quid until the end of the year. That's theathletic.com slash totally. Good afternoon, passengers. This is a pre-boarding announcement for flight 89. Please have your boarding pass and identification ready. Baku, Sevilla, Amsterdam, Glasgow, München, Sankt Petersburg, Bukarest, Budapest, Copenhagen, Roma, London. Unbelievable. Totally football show at the Euros. Scotland beat England 0-0 at Wembley. Bloody Schick scored again. And Sweden and Slovakia unite a continent in boredom. Plus, Saturday's action. Will it be effing hell for Germany in their second game? Are France hungry for goals? These questions and far better ones will be answered on this Totally Football show in association with Paddy Power. Oh, listener, all that hype, all that anticipation, all that build-up, and then you remember that Jimbo's not back until the knockout stages. Never mind, though. We'll roll on anyway. Uh, it's me, Matt, alongside Daniel Story. Hi, Matt. And Duncan Alexander's with us, too. Hello, Matt. Hi. Uh, we'll get to England-Scotland briefly. Uh, first, the good news of the day. Christian Eriksen, discharged from hospital, went to visit the Denmark team and has gone home to spend some time with his family. Denmark's final group game against Russia on Monday night in Copenhagen. But we know what we're here for, really. We're going to talk about Friday's action and we can only start at Wembley. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. England nil, Scotland nil then. Gareth Southgate's attire way too casual for my liking and so too his team's attitude toward this game. In a lot of ways, a win for England would have seen them qualified, but it ended nil-nil. And Daniel, no doubt that Scotland come out of it with more credit than England. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, not just because they got the draw, but also because they were at times the better team on the ball, at other times the most threatening team, certainly matched England all over the pitch. Uh, and yeah, clear backward steps for England, but all credit to Scotland who, you know, I don't think the occasion got to England. I think they just played poorly, but Scotland used that occasion as, as fuel, as motivation to to raise their performance. And um, yeah, fully fully deserved and merited the the nil nil draw. And Duncan rewarded Steve Clark for a, for a bold team selection with with Billy Gilmore earning his first full cap and and playing Shea Adams as as people had asked for. Yeah, both of them were were absolutely brilliant. Gilmore ran his socks off, his presumably sized small socks, and uh, Shea Adams was that kind of aerial outlet that they needed. I mean, I thought it's one of those games where it, it's going to be remembered for the outcome rather than what went in. I mean, England had three shots early on. John Stones hit the post. Mason Mount had a good chance. He couldn't quite turn his turn his right foot to, to get it on target. I mean, if one of those had gone in, I know it's a cliche, it would have been a very different game, but it, it would have been. And, you know, everyone was building up the hype about the the derby-ness of it and the passion and everything, and it was raining and Graham Souness was bristling and all that stuff. So, And then people then seemed surprised that the game then kind of descended into a bit of a sort of slugging match in, in, in midfield. And that's kind of the, the way England-Scotland games kind of always do end up like that. I mean, Pete, I would urge people, I wouldn't urge people to do this, but if you watch the first half from Euro 96, that, that was even worse from from both teams. I mean, these games are never great. And yeah, it wasn't a great performance from England, but they are unbeaten in the tournament. They are essentially, now, they can draw their last game with Czech Republic and come second, which was the scenario which everyone was kind of going, oh, wouldn't it be quite good if England came second? So I think it might be one of those games that, as we record now, a few minutes after the final whistle, seems terrible. But in the long run, it, it might not be that bad. The fact that it seems terrible, Daniel, how much of that is down to the fact that Harry Kane, in the time that he was on the pitch, looked as though he was running through treacle. Raheem Sterling, who'd been so impressive against Croatia, was was anonymous. And, and I kind of felt like Gareth Southgate got his substitutions wrong as well. Yeah, to my mind, there were there were two big problems. The first is Kane, which I, I don't know, but I suspect has spooked Southgate because... Um, he was the talisman, he was the leader, he was the top goal scorer at the 2018 World Cup. And I think Southgate was, you know, all that kind of questionable decisions about who would play behind Kane, about who would play in central midfield, about who would play at fullback, about who would play in central defence even. Kane was the one that everyone was sure of. And it wasn't that we were necessarily hanging our hat on Kane. It was just that you expect from Kane a certain level. You expect at least a 7 out of 10 for England. You expect him to have two or three shots every game. You expect him to pretty much score every other England game. And he's looked completely anonymous, not just in terms of his shots, but just in terms of his all-round game and his touch and his link-up play, just isn't there. And I think that's probably spooked Southgate because for all the attacking options, there really isn't anyone that replaces what Kane does when Kane does it well. Um, and the second is, is I think, the midfield, the central midfielders sat too deep and the attacking midfielders were too high, which meant, particularly in the first half, there were times when when Tyrone Mings, maybe, or Stones, or even Declan Rice had the ball and there was basically 40 yards of pitch and then four or maybe sometimes five England players wanting the ball and there was no one really pulling deep so we just end up knocking it quite long or playing it out wide and playing it back across defence and never really getting anywhere so 
they're the two big issues. The 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 the, the second of those was easier to solve. Um, because as I say, nobody replaces what Kane does. But I thought, yeah, I thought Southgate got it wrong. I thought he probably should have brought on someone else for Phillips, maybe Grealish for Phillips rather than Grealish for yeah um, for Foden. I didn't think Foden deserved to be substituted. To be honest, he seemed the most the most lively, the most kind of uh, the best thinker from the England front three for for the time he was on the pitch. Um, I mean, there's a there's a stat from the second half. Remember the Reese James chance, pretty good chance, which he hit over. Uh, that came after a move of 38 passes, which is the longest sequence so far this Euros to end in a shot, which sounds good. But actually, if you actually look at that move, it was one of those sort of ponderous England moves that that all right, it was okay towards the end, but it had taken so long, and and it's just you know, there's this kind of belief um, in England and that that England have to play with tempo like this the English way of playing with tempo and I don't think it's an English thing I think just when teams are playing well they naturally do it look at Italy so far in this Euros you look at Holland they're playing like that because they're confident and players want to get on the ball and other players are making runs England just looked a bit a bit scared um, and it happens quite a lot and I think I think you can almost look at the reaction on social media during the game and, and kind of realise why it happens as well because the just the kind of extreme reaction was extraordinary. People have gone from pre game being like, This is, you know, a, a huge game, come on England to like this is the worst result in the history of English football. <laughs> it's not. It's all you know, it's it's not it wasn't a great performance, but England didn't lose. They're in a great position to get through to the knockouts. Tournaments aren't won by a, a consistent team. They're just they're a series of one off games essentially. So yeah, I mean I I just think the reaction's been a bit a bit extreme. Jack Grealish got on here, Daniel. Does that mean that he's passed the baton on to Jaden Sancho now for a player who improves exponentially with every game he doesn't feature in? I am a little bit uncomfortable with this lionisation of, of Grealish's um the answer. He didn't do an awful lot when he came on. He does draw fouls, there's no doubt about that. Um he does also demand the ball, which in that situation actually works pretty well because no one else, as Duncan says, no one else was really doing that. I think it makes sense now for Southgate to start him in the next game. I think that's without doubt because he's going to have to change it up, partly to give other squad players a go and partly because um, there will need to be seen to be some sort of reaction, I think, to that kind of lethargic display. Um, but yeah, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with all our hopes being pinned on a guy with with seven and a bit caps after tonight. Um, he's a fabulous footballer, he really is. But, um, you know, it can't be that Grealish is the answer. Grealish is the is the Gascoigne type figure because that's not what Southgate's built this team on. He's built it on everyone, everybody contributing, not one player being completely dominant on the ball. So uh, he, he is still good enough to win a game by himself, particularly against Czech Republic. So I'd start him in that game, but I am a little bit uncomfortable with a kind of, he's the man now. And as you say, they all look so much better after when they're not on the pitch. And also the, the comparisons of Gascoigne. Gascoigne by '96 had been in the England team for eight years, and you know, on and off due to injury, obviously, but was an experienced leader in the team. Grealish isn't that player, and he he looked caught between two stools a couple of times when he came on. He you know he ran with the ball well a couple of times, but he also looked he he let it, let the ball go quite early a couple of times. You could see him sort of. You know, there's a lot of pressure to heap on someone, as Daniel says, with, with very few caps. From a Scotland perspective, 
you can see them beating Croatia, I guess, an aging, weary-looking Croatia. But but really, come the end of this tournament, are they going to be left ruining how they played in the first game against the Czech Republic? Because that looks like an opportunity miss based on on what they showed at Wembley on Friday night. Yeah, I mean, they ended. If you'd have said to Scotland a week or so ago, you'll get more shots than the Czech Republic. You'll get more shots in England in your first two games. Will you take that? I think they probably would have said, yeah, okay. Um, and that's what's happened. But they they have been a bit unlucky. I mean, to, to not score yet in this tournament seems harsh given some of their attacking play. But but like you say, I think they're still in with a decent chance. Um, obviously, they've got a, a minus two goal difference. So they probably need to win by at least two goals, I think, to, to be in with a chance of being one of those best third-place teams. What do you think, Daniel? Can they do it? Yeah, I think they they probably can because um, without resorting too much to cliches, Steve Clark kind of alluded to it that maybe they were a little bit kind of overawed by the first game, but that in a way the 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 flip side to the negativity of losing to the Czech Republic is that it, it basically meant they knew what exact exactly what they needed to do. I don't think they expected to beat England, but they did fancy themselves to to grind out a draw, which is exactly what they did and. At that point, the path is clear. You draw with England, you beat Croatia, you go through. And um, Croatia look miles off the pace. But we should say that Croatia can also qualify with a win against Scotland. So it's not going to be as easy as just Scotland playing a broken team. One last thing about England. That was their 17th goalless draw at a major tournament, which is two more than any other uh, team in the history of Euros and World Cups combined. So it's not a new a new stance for England to, to draw 0 nil as it? I'm just trying to think. That's definitely going to be a quiz in the Intertotally next year, isn't it? How many of those 17 <laughs> can you name? Hopefully it won't be asked to me. Uh, Group D concludes on Tuesday night. Both the games played at 8 o'clock. Croatia against Scotland and the Czech Republic against England. The other thing I, I, we, we maybe should say is that Southgate obviously changed his fullbacks for this game. I guess ostensibly to, to one deal with the threat of Andy Robertson, which I think they did pretty well actually. Um, the you know a couple of the big chances Scotland or the kind of moments of danger Scotland created actually came from Stephen O'Donnell crossing it rather than Robertson. Um, I think they sh- they shut him down very well, but they, those fullbacks didn't really provide anything in terms of an attacking threat. Um, England fullbacks seem to have this really frustrating thing where and Chilwell does it too, where they get forward and then as soon as they've got a certain distance up the pitch, they turn back and play it back into midfield, which. Must be a deliberate tactic, but Scotland were more than happy for the ball to be in the middle of the pitch. You know, they had fighters in midfield. They had three central defenders. Grant Hanley was excellent. Tomine was excellent. And what England needed to do was kind of double up down out wide and then play kind of pretty passes around the area, not passing it back into midfield and then back into defence again. It just allowed Scotland to kind of firm themselves up. The Euros are here, and we'd better make the most of them, because they only come around every four, uh, five years. So if your bookie isn't making you feel special, then maybe it's time to find a new one. Yep, not so much carpe diem as carpadium. Hmm, if the grass is greener on the other side, come and play on it. If your bookie's not giving you the best rewards, switch, and you'll get a completely free £5 bet builder on the Czech Republic versus England this Tuesday. Paddy Power! Free match bet builder bets, only match one free bet, min two plus legs, online exclusive, must have previously deposited T's and C's apply, easy plus, be gambleaware.org. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, 
You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Well, earlier in the day in Group D, Croatia and the Czech Republic drew one all at Hampden Park. Croatia were boosted by the return of the world's greatest defender, Dejan Lovren, albeit probably not in the top 500 greatest free kick takers based on the evidence here. Uh, Patrick Schick then had his nose busted open by Lovren. He got himself up and dispatched the subsequent penalty as Terry Butcher nodded on approvingly. Uh, but Ivan Perisic ensured Croatia put their first point on the board with his second half strike. Daniel, pretty hard to be impressed by either team here, really. Czechs maybe marginally the better side? Uh, yeah, I'm, I was more impressed by the Czechs because I thought Croatia would be would be far better. Uh, and yeah, they closed them down. I mean, it was a, a, a wretched match. It was a it was a match between you know one team who realised that a point would probably take them through the knockout stages, and another team who realised that maybe beating Scotland was probably their best chance to do exactly the same in their third game. Again, I was surprised at the selection of of Dalic. He's still not picked what Croatian journalists predicted would be the the either the shape or the formation that we thought. You know, still no Nikola Vlasic. Ante Rebic looks pretty much completely off the pace in a Harry Kane-style scenario. And they just don't seem to get enough players into the box. You know, Modric, it's all very well, Modric and you know, Kovacic being a, a, a breaker-up of play and Modric being a supreme passer. But if there isn't anyone in front of them to spark anything, then they're going to be sorely lacking. And they're, they're far, far too easy to defend against. Just looks maybe a, a tournament too far for this group, Duncan. Yeah, I mean, I think Perisic obviously rolled back the years. That's the the fourth tournament in a row that he's scored in. He's uh, if you include Euro twenty twelve when he got an assist, he's um, got twelve goal involvements in tournaments for Croatia, which is which is really good. Um, I think only uh, Hazard, Griezmann, and Ronaldo have got more than that in the same period. And you know, he tends to perform better for his uh, national team than than his club team often. But yeah, they they did look they they were better in the second half definitely, but it was. It was. It got to like seventy minutes, and you you knew it was going to end one one. There was absolutely no chance it wasn't going to end one one. And I think both teams were kind of happy that it was going to end one one. So it was like, why don't we just finish it now and have some extra build up to the greatest game ever, uh, England Scotland? But you know, life doesn't work like that, does it? So. Uh, Daniel, it was only this morning that your column on the refereeing in Euro 2020 and how good it has been was published. Uh, and, and lo and behold, we get the first kind of whiffy decision of the tournament or major one, at least in this game, and, and that penalty given against Lovren. Yes and no. It, it's, it's, it's a complete, it was a complete reverse of the normal cliche, which is that um, when a penalty gets given, you say, well, you know, if it was anywhere on the pitch, you'd give it. Actually, with that one, uh, yeah, I, I I think if you jump and 
your elbow extends and catches someone in the face, the referee probably gives a free kick against you. I'm surprised he gave it, having looked at the VAR, because the first angle made it look quite a lot like a penalty, the, the angle from behind, but the one from the side made it look really, really soft. So I was surprised he gave it. Um, so I, I don't think it was a howler, um, but that is me just clinging on to the piece I wrote rather than maybe expressing <laughs> honest and true opinion. I, 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 I sort of agree with you, to be honest. And I think, I think the fact that uh, Schick's nose exploded helped as well. You know, I think a bit, of, <laughs> a bit of blood. It's the old, what was that rugby team? Was it Harlequins where they used to just bring out blood capsules to make stuff look a bit worse? And I'm not, I'm not accusing anyone in the, the, the superior game of football of that, but I think a bit of uh, a bit of claret helps bring clarity to a referee. There you go. <laughs> Clapham Party Superstore, wasn't it? That they got the blood capsules from. I used to live just uh, yeah. just down the road from there. Uh, Patrick Schick, by the way, scored or assisted eleven goals in his last ten games. Now might be on for the Golden Boot as well. Schick hot, etc. Seventy-seventh match minute. And it's one for Sweden. And it's so wonderful. Sweden are closing in on the last 16 after they beat Slovakia by a goal to nil in St. Petersburg. Emil Forsberg's latest penalty, one of only four shots on target in the game, all of which were from Sweden. Uh, anybody managed to stay awake throughout this? Yeah, I did. Uh, if only to decide whether Emil Forsberg looks like um, the Swedish Robbie Savage or any drawing you would do with an Australian cricketer freehand. It's uh, somewhere <laughs> in the middle, I think. Uh, but when he celebrated it, it just looked like a cricket appeal. I really enjoyed that. I mean, it was a dreadful game, so I had to, my mind had to wander to other things. But um, yeah, Sweden are yeah incredibly one-dimensional, and yet that dimension seems to have plenty enough to take them into the knockout stages. So fair play, I suppose. I was really disappointed with Slovakia in the second half because... They've got to play Spain in the ne- in the next game, so you know basically trying to settle for a draw but not doing it that well was a really poor piece of game management. I thought. Anything at all stand out to you from this game, Duncan? I mean, Alexander Isaac had another reasonable game. Um, completed six dribbles, which is the most by anyone so far, the most by a Swedish player since Thomas Brolin in 1992. So. Um, he might not end his career with Crystal Palace, I don't know. But um, yeah, he looks a decent prospect. But yeah, I mean, to echo what, what Daniel said, what was Slovakia doing? No shots on target in a game. If they'd have won that, they'd have been through. So it was it was baffling, really. Uh, on Isaac, by the way, uh, producer Charlie flagging up a, a tweet that, that uh, centred on Isaac's post-match interview. He was told about the praise he'd been given from Gary Lineker. He said, I'm not aware of him. Is it an old player working in the studio? He's then told that Lineker was the top scorer at the 86 World Cup. I wasn't born then, but I have a little bit of knowledge about him. Yeah. The only way that interview would have got better if Isaac had just sort of looked to one side and then said, S*** on pitch, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Right, that was Friday's action then. We'll look ahead to Saturday's games next. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, host of The England Show, brought to you daily throughout Euro 2020. I'll be joined by writers from The Athletic and special guests to bring you unrivaled coverage dedicated to the England team this summer. So for expert insight into Southgate's squad and post-game reaction to all the games, search for The England Show 
wherever you get your podcasts or via the Athletic app. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with Matt Davis-Adams. Three fascinating matches in prospect on Saturday. Then we'll start our look ahead in Munich, where Germany take on Portugal. Joachim Löw's team, for a little longer at least, needing to get something after the disappointing defeat against France. Earlier, I caught up with our friend Raphael Honigstein to gauge the mood around the Mannschaft. Raph, your latest piece for The Athletic focuses on the 3-4-3 system that Lerv is seemingly wedded to. Uh, observers and supporters of the team not, though. Do we know how the players feel about it? Any sense of a, a mutiny brewing? I don't think there is a mutiny just yet. Uh, there is some unease, there's some concern that this is not the right system, doesn't quite bring out the best out of this team, but it hasn't come to the point where it's seen as so disastrous or so detrimental that it needs to be stopped at all costs. And that, of course, is a reflection of the way the game went against France, where Germany weren't terribly bad. And you couldn't really point your finger to one specific thing being wrong. In my view and many others, the system didn't help the team necessarily. But it would be a little bit reductive to say that the system was to blame for Germany's defeat, which is why we don't seem to have that internal debate with the same sense of sort of force uh, just yet. But it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens uh, if and when Joachim Löw chooses his formation because, of course, if he sticks with that formation, he increases the pressure uh, on himself to an extent, even though he might not feel it because he's off anyway after the Euro, uh, to get it right. And if it doesn't, then, of course, the system will be blamed uh, even more and people will, will doubt his judgment even more. If he did switch to four at the back, how would that help Germany? Well, I think the the biggest difference would not so much be the defensive setup because whether you play with a back four or with a three defenders who have one wide player moving into midfield the whole time as Italy do, the differences aren't that big. But of course, having only, in inverted commas, um, four defenders on the pitch then allows you to have an extra midfielder. Um, the three-four-three often is a five-five-two-three, um, and that takes away that one player in central midfield that Germany could do with, in general terms. But more specifically, it's taken away the place of Joshua Kimmich, who's arguably the best German player at this competition. 
which is why I think this debate has has got legs, um, unlike maybe the uh, midfield pairing of Ilka Gunnar and Toni Kroos. <laughs> because people are thinking, yes, it's fine to change. I can understand why Löw wants defensive stability, but is the cost they're paying for this, is the price that they're paying, is it not too high if it marginalises Jose Kimmich at the same time? Potential changes in system then. What about in terms of personnel? Might we see, say, Leroy Sane or Timo Werner get a start here? I think Kai Havertz will do well to hold on to his starting uh, berth because he didn't really convince. He wasn't the only one struggling, I think, up front. Uh, nothing that Thomas Müller did really stuck. Serge Gnabry had a relatively quiet game, apart from that one chance that he scuffed slightly. So I think of those front players, the starting position of Kahavat is most under threat. And it wouldn't be a huge surprise if in his place we'll see uh, Leroy Sane, a more orthodox winger, or uh, perhaps even Kevin Follin, a more orthodox striker, uh, with others supporting them. So, uh, And Timo Werner, as you mentioned, is, is of course an option as well, even though perhaps against Portugal with their fairly compact um, defensive setup, he's perhaps not the most natural um, striker to play so that's one change that will be made and of course the other one we don't know um, if there's a formation change that will have then a knock-on effect on how the midfield will look but right now indications are that Löw will stick with the system the Portugal game not a definitively must win one but would certainly ease the pressure on the final game against Hungary if you could pick up three points I think a draw is probably the, the minimum requirement here there might it might still be possible to go through with three points if they have a convincing win against uh, Hungary, but you don't really want to rely on that. You saw how difficult Hungary made it for Portugal right until the end and the pressure, I think, not on Germany, but on the players themselves, maybe, on you know, to to have a not just a win but a convincing win would be would be considerable. So Germany would do very well to try and win this game. That would really make a huge difference. And make it much more, I don't want to say comfortable, but maybe would clear the path somewhat towards the, the last 16. Um, so it's a, it's a big game and it could well decide or partially decide the legacy of Joachim Löw. Finally then, give us a prediction, Raf. What's going to happen on Saturday and, and do Germany make it out of this extremely tricky looking group? I feel strangely optimistic about the game without really being able to justify it logically so much. It's more of a gut feeling that Germany might somehow come good despite all these issues that they have. I think it's going to be close. I think they might just edge it, but I wouldn't be surprised if once again, little details are not quite right and they don't get the result that they need to. So I'm hoping for a 1-0 win. Well, wouldn't be surprised if we're having the same conversation in a few days' time talking about Germany needing that mess up when it gets hungry. Uh, Daniel, how helpful is it for, for Joachim Löw to, to know that Hansi Flick's looking up from on high in the stands above him? That's a kind of weird dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, although I think because Löw announced his own, effectively chose his own departure date, uh, and then went on this kind of sort of PR tour of, of German football, saying that he wanted this kind of special ending um, to repair the broken relationship with supporters post 
World Cup 2018, I think he's kind of managed to shift the the dreaded narrative away from his replacement to let's make this a, a very happy ending. But um, yeah, I don't think it, it is going to end in that, if I'm honest. I, I just don't see any kind of verve, exactly the same as England, actually, I thought, but it would be against France, who are, who are clearly a high-class op- opposition. But even before the tournament, we just haven't seen that verve from Germany until their last warm-up game when they, they thrashed Latvia. But, you know, there's a fairly large asterisk next to that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Port- I'll disagree with Rafa. I think Portugal might win. Uh, Germany have won all the last four meetings between these two at major tournaments. Ronaldo played in all of those, but didn't manage so much as a goal. I guess Portugal might mix things up a bit team-wise. Duncan here, Renato Sanchez and Andre Silva got lots of praise when they came off the bench against Hungary and, and Joao Felix didn't even manage to do that. Yeah, I mean, as we've said on previous pods, you know, they, they've got a much stronger squad than they did uh, five years ago. So, yeah, I think Silva particularly made a, made a massive difference. You know, Portugal kind of were heading to a similar sort of outcome as England against Scotland, but then, you know, scoring three quick goals makes a big difference. Um, just on the flick thing, I think it is weird that he sat there, right? That is not the normal kind of succession of managers. I wonder, it's never been done in football before, I don't think, but say Germany losing at half-time, why don't they just make the change there and then? Just, you know, <laughs> it seems like the plot of a Netflix film, but, you know, Flick walks into the dressing room and turns it round. It'd be uh, it'd be decent. But yeah, I, I, I think Portugal um, will, will win this one as well. Even if there is a flick on. It's kind of that re- reverse of when Moyes took over at Man United and every time they conceded a goal, the camera would cut to, to Sir Alex in the stands. Um, both games in Group F, by the way, being refereed by English officials. Michael Oliver in Budapest, Anthony Taylor in Munich. Uh, hopefully we're not talking about them too much on Sunday's podcast. Uh, it will be Taylor's first game since the harrowing experience that was Denmark against Finland uh, last Saturday. And, and once again, we should praise him for, for his actions in that match. Well, kicking things off earlier in the day, Hungary and favourites France. Another full house expected in Budapest for this one. And speaking of Budapest, by the way, UEFA says it's confident the semi-finals and final of Euro 2020 will be held at Wembley, but has a contingency plan amid concerns around England's coronavirus restrictions. And that contingency plan would be to move it to Budapest. Um, Daniel, on that, that's surely not going to happen, isn't it? That that feels like a kind of typical idle threat slash promise from UEFA. Yeah, well, as we understand it, it surrounds the availability of VIPs and dignitaries to flit in and out the country uh, completely above any quarantining uh, and yeah effectively that it it sounds like UEFA uh, if not holding the FA hostage uh, are just kind of giving them a tap on the shoulder and reminding them that they've got a couple of thousand VIPs who they want to be very seamlessly coming in and out of of the UK on that weekend which knowing everything we do i suspect that the government will find a way for them to to do so and the because they will want to keep the semi-final and final um i wonder it, the kind of public mood probably depends on whether england are in it i suppose i mean if if england qualify for a semi-final and 10 days before the game find out that it's not going to be at wembley there is going to be a huge amount of backlash to that decision Back to the game between Hungary and France then. Duncan, 
France kind of doing the same thing potentially that they did in 2018, feeling their way into the competition and then and then hitting top gear later on. Albeit it was a it was a tricky opening game for them, wasn't it? So you wouldn't expect them to be at their absolute best. Yeah, yeah. Germany in Germany is not a, not an easy prospect, even when the Germans are going through a difficult time. But yeah, it's I mean under Didier Deschamps, they're never going to be completely Aussie Ardiles, are they? So, but I mean for me, I think. They, didn't, they only made a couple of substitutions against Germany. I would have thought they'd have, given they've probably got the best bench in the tournament, you'd think they would utilise that a bit more, particularly if they want to protect players, particularly like Kylian Mbappe, who has had his injury concerns this season. You'd think giving him 90 minutes each time would be a bit of a risk. So it'd be interesting to see if Giroud comes on from Mbappe just for narrative purposes. But um, yeah, you, you wouldn't, even with the home crowd, you wouldn't think uh, France would have too many difficulties. Eric Cantona, Scored two goals the last time they won away in Hungary. So he isn't on the bench as far as I know, but probably could do a job. Hungary actually have the better of the head-to-head record with France. They've beaten them 12 times, albeit France have won the last five meetings. Can Hungary go for the the same approach as they did against Portugal, Dan, do you think? I mean, the the fact that they've got this full house does clearly work in their favour, but they're likely to run out of steam again, as the game gets towards its latter stages against such high-quality opposition? Yeah, I think it will be basically a rerun of the game against Portugal, but that everything will shift slightly early in the game, um, partly because France are better than Portugal and partly because I think Hungary might run out of energy a little bit quicker. Um, so, yeah, I think they, they will go kind of very combative, very aggressive, you know, lots of sprints, lots of pressing in the first 20, 25 minutes, and then at some point France will pick them off. And really Hungary are in a horrible position then because they they need to keep going for it because if they lose twice they know that they're not going to go through and yeah I think I think France will just the only respite for Hungary is that as Duncan said they France will choose to rotate players ahead of what then turns into a, a relentless set of fixtures for France because they'll play Portugal and then the knockout so Hungary might be the, the kind of game off for them. Well, the day's action concludes with Spain against Poland in Seville. Two teams who underwhelmed massively in their opening games. Might struggle for goals in this one, Duncan, based in in what we saw from uh, from both of these two in the opening games. Alvaro Morata and and Lewandowski likely to be the the protagonists, but maybe not in the way that they would like. Yeah, I mean, it's not very often you can compare Lewandowski and Morata as equals, but in international tournaments... They pretty much are. I mean, Murat has failed to score in his last four internationals, uh, had 12 shots. Lewandowski scored with just two of his 35 shots for Poland at, at major tournaments. Um, you know, As I pointed out the day, he's got fewer tournament goals than Nicholas Bentner. So for, for undoubtedly one of the, if not the best centre forward in the world, he needs to, you know, step up. And this is a, you know, this would be a, a good game to do it on, um, albeit on that extremely patchy pitch in Sevilla. Uh, not sure that the Spanish commentator Manolo Lamar can take much more of Morata. If he was picking the team, I think Gerard Moreno would be starting up front in this game, Daniel. Uh, that might be the case anyway, you suspect. No, well, no. Luis Enrique has kind of said it will be Morata and 10 others against Poland, which, um, I mean, maybe he'll play both. But it's 
it does seem a, an extraordinary hill to die on, given the mounting evidence. I mean, there was a, even, I, I watched Spain's warm-up before the tournament against Portugal, and he was exactly the same in, in that. It, it, there's something about Alvaro Morata that makes club presidents want to spend forty between 40 and 60 million pounds on him, but we haven't seen it, and we certainly haven't seen it consistently. And as you say, Gerard Moreno is is prolific he's had a brilliant season he's 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 relatively new in terms of the spain team but you just wonder if their creative midfielders would like to pass to someone who they think well, they can be confident is going to take the chances because the whole caricature of morata is that he's this incredibly sad striker as soon as he misses a chance you know you some strikers miss a chance and it angers them and they want to make amends. He isn't one of those. It seems to break him. It's almost as if after he's missed his first of the game, you might as well take him off. And there is a, a pretty easy way of solving that. And that's by not starting him in the first place. He's less XG and more existentialism, I think you could find. But um, <laughs> are we entirely sure that the UEFA Pro license doesn't involve a module where managers have to double down on their strikers if they're out of form? Because it seems to be a pretty standard thing across football both international and at clubs that and I know why they do it essentially but it is frustrating particularly in a tournament where you don't get that many opportunities right we're nearly done for today at uh, high time we've got some odds from Paddy Power though let's head over to producer Ben thank you very much Matt Davis Adams it's Jason Murphy on the line from Paddy Power again Jason what a day we've had today tomorrow looking exceedingly tasty as well I'm up for an acker so Give me odds, please, then, for France winning and scoring over two and a half goals against Hungary, Portugal to avoid defeat against Germany, and Spain to win and have over 2.5 goals against Poland. Yeah, so the first leg with Hungary against France, Hungary were unbeaten in 11 games prior to losing to Portugal. But if you look at those 11 games, there was no teams in the top 20, only three teams in the top 40. And I think the golfing class showed, yes, they were hardworking, but against the French... Mbappe, Griezmann, Benzema. We see France winning this game and we see plenty of goals in the game. So France to win and over two and a half goals in the game is even money. Then the one that we're licking our lips for, Portugal against Germany. Given the context of the game, we reckon Portugal to avoid defeat is a really good angle. So Portugal or the draw and the double chance because Portugal to take a point here, given their healthy goal difference from the win against Hungary, they're very likely to get through with four points. Whereas Germany, I think, take a point from this game and fancy themselves to finish the job again in Munich against Hungary in the last round. So that price there is about 8-15 and then in the last game we've Spain against Poland. Poland were very poor against Slovakia. They made the change going with Paulo Sousa in January to be more aggressive, more offensive. It just hasn't worked. He hasn't probably had the time for it to bet in, whereas I have no concerns over Spain. They created a chance against Sweden, just didn't finish them, but they'll create likewise against Poland tonight. And Spain to win in over two and a half goals in that game is 11 to 10. Put the three of them in a treble with Paddy Power and it comes out at about 9 to 2. The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Place a four-plus-fold bet builder on any football match and get money back as a free bet if one leg lets you down. Check paddypower.com for more details. £10 max free bet. T's and C's apply. 80-plus. Be gambling away. Por el centro que va de área a área. Aquí viene Chile. Aquí está Big Ben. Big Ben. Golazo. Gol. Gol. Recontra golazo de Big Ben. Benjamin Brereton. 
el inglés chileno, una cero. Listener, if you're following the Copa America as well as the Euros, you might have been somewhat surprised to have seen the name of Ben Brereton in the Chile squad. Blackburn striker uh, scored in their game against Bolivia on Friday night. Uh, would you have thought that, Daniel, when, when you saw him tearing things up at the city ground for that, that brief spell where he looked like the answer to all our problems? I don't know this um, Ben Brereton Diaz, which is what he has on the back of his shirt, which is absolutely wonderful. It's a kind of fascio sketch that he has Brereton Diaz on the back of his shirt. Um, yeah, I mean, f- I mean, obviously, absolutely fair play to him. He has, you know, he qualifies. There's no doubt about that. He has has family heritage of Chile, and why on earth wouldn't you if you got the chance to go to a Copper America and clearly taking it with both hands slash one foot. Um, so yeah, I mean, absolutely chuff for him. I mean, I, I, I think Forrest did well to get eight million pounds for him when they did because I think he was a player who looked brilliant at youth level, but you could kind of tell might struggle when everyone else was the same size as him and um, was kind of knocking him around. But he's done okay at Blackburn. But yeah, I mean, he's now scored at a major international tournament, so never take that away from him. Meanwhile, on this day in Euros history, the 19th of June, uh, we've got a genuine classic in the group stages, probably the best game of Euro 2004. It finished the Netherlands 2, Czech Republic 3. Heinz! Czechs, one of a number of teams outside of Greece that, that will feel that they could and, and probably should have won that tournament. They had Petacek in goal, Poborski, Nedved, Rizitsky, Barros and the massive Jan Koller, beaten in the semis by Greece, though. Duncan, we should probably put a bit more respect on their name in, in Euros. They always seem to do well and here we are again. You know, they've got Patrick Schick banging them in and we're still saying, yeah, they're not that impressive. Yeah, I mean... England would love to have the Czech Republic's record uh, in Euros. Um, yeah, they were good that in that iteration. I mean, Petr Cech was actually the pundit for the the Croatia game, and he said that he watched the Euro '96 team as a kid, as a 14 year old, and then when he finally got into the team, a lot of those players were still playing, and he found it. You know, he was quite nervous of playing with these big stars. But yeah, that that generation, they they really did ring out the uh, the best from that generation. Um, my favourite thing about Jan Koller is that him, Carson Janka and Peter Crouch all scored 13 Champions League goals as if there's like a sort of glass ceiling for extremely <laughs> tall men, um, which maybe there is, technically. Number 13, lucky for big blokes. Um, Daniel, I mentioned that the Czech Republic went out to, to Greece in the semis. They went out via a silver goal which mm. feels like a, a a kind of fever dream when, when we had that. Is there any kind of cause to bring golden and silver goals back into it? You just generally don't get goals in extra time anyway. They lost a golden goal in Euro 96, didn't they? So they had they did, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the golden goal was a, officially a bad idea because um, teams just factored that given that they were pretty shattered, they were better going for penalties than they were pushing on and leaving themselves open to conceding a goal. Although a few did happen and a few very famously uh, in finals, both the 2000 and 96. Um, and it was, it, one thing we should say is it was a phenomenal way of ending a game um, to know that you, you were scoring with literally the last kick in an open play scenario was um, probably the best way to win a match, I guess. Silver goal was just a really 
it was as if there was a, some sort of curfew imposed that well we don't want to have penalties at half 10 that is too late for penalties <laughs> so we'll just have 15 minutes so, you know it was a very odd scenario it messes up databases because there's certain games with 105 minutes like what what's ah uh, yeah the silver goal <laughs> yeah not for me what's a bronze goal uh, just Lucy Bronze, I guess. <laughs> That's Euro 2004, anyway. If you've been following the Athletics Euro Stories podcast series, there's going to be one on Euro 2004 out very soon. I don't think it's been a vintage couple of days for this championship, but but I'll ask you both: Is there anything you're looking forward to particularly tomorrow? It feels like we might get back in the swing of things with with the games that we've got lined up on Saturday. Yeah, I think. I think there's a reason that it's not been a vintage couple of days and that's because for all the supposed benefits of third place teams going through and therefore there being jeopardy on the final matches, I think it means that you, for, for quite a lot of groups you effectively get a, almost a match off where basically a draw is good enough for pretty much every team, whatever scenario they're looking for. Either you lost your first game and you think, well, a draw here and we're moving in the right direction, win or last. Win the first game and you think, well, a draw is no disaster because we we could still top the group and we're definitely through. So I think it's just the worst situation for both and that's why we're getting this lull. Having said that, I agree. I think tomorrow looks brilliant because there are some, I think, probably the winner of the tournament will be playing tomorrow in some shape or form which is really nice certainly I think two of the semi-finalists will be playing (laughs) so that's that's all good yeah that's a really good point I think they've kind of they've shifted the dead rubber uh from the third game to the second game in a sense which is is that better probably is better once we get to the third games although they're the ones that are on simultaneously so then you start panicking you're you're missing red hot action so um I think tomorrow looks it's got all the all the hallmarks of a, a classic day of Euros action. Well, join us, listener, as we reflect on those three goalless draws uh, round about the same time tomorrow. Uh, until then, many thanks to Duncan and to Daniel and to Raf for joining us earlier and, of course, producer Charlie and you two, listener. Uh, what say we do it all again same time tomorrow? Bye for now. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Keep up to date with everything Totally at The Totally Show on Twitter and find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.